Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, listeners to the Baha'i Blogcast. It's me, Rain Wilson. How's it going, listeners? I don't know what to call you guys. I feel like I need a nickname for for the, as I've said, dozens of Baha'i Blogcast listeners that are out there. Thanks for tuning in on this extra special episode. And I say that about every episode, too. I say, oh, this very special episode. Oh, I'm so excited about this one. Let me just put it this way. I am equally as excited about this conversation that I'm about to have as I have been with so many great conversations of the past, like Joy DeGruy and Tierney Sutton and Stephen Phelps. So um, I'm, I'm equal. I'm equal excited, and this is equal special podcast. So this is typical. So this is a typical podcast. So welcome to a profoundly typical podcast. And you hear giggling on the other end. You hear my dear friend, uh, incredible musician, scholar, human being, with an incredible head of hair, by the way, uh, Luke Slot, who's Skyping in with me from Dublin. Hi, Luke. Hi, Rain. Thanks for having me. Great, great to see you. Your hair is really magnificent. I had hair like that when I was in my twenties, and um, it's really it's fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, I got good hair on both sides of the family. So oh, okay, good. <laughs> Irish people have tend to have really nice hair, <laughs> or maybe just messy. I don't know. It's messy, but it's colorful and windswept, and <clears throat> it's like the the heather on the on the hillocks, you know, and. <laughs> It's, you know, it's kind of, it's Gaelic and ancient and, and melodious. It's part of the landscape. It's, it's part, part of the, the landscape. landscape. Exactly. So, um, Luke, uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. And for you viewers who don't know, listeners who don't know, Luke is a, a terrific high musician, singer, songwriter. I'm mostly familiar with his devotional music that he does based on the writings, soaring, uh, elegant melodies, really haunting Gorgeous stuff. We got to perform together. Well, he performed and I emceed a couple of events and just fell in love with him and his music. And he's a dear person, as you will soon find out. Luke, you're in Dublin. What are you doing in Dublin? I'm in Dublin preparing for the release of my new album, Year of the Nightingale, which uh, I've been working on, especially as a kind of tribute to the celebration of the, the bicentennial of the birth of Baha'u'llah. So it's an exciting time. It's real crunch time now as I'm preparing for the album release. And I'm getting the the songs lined up to release one at a time um, throughout the period of the fast. So there's gonna it's going to be a special release where I'll release one song every other day um, throughout the fast. And then uh, at the end of March, the album will be officially released. Oh, that's beautiful. That's fantastic. I look forward to hearing those. Um, but it's all finished, right? It's all been mixed and it's yeah, it's all tracked, mixed, mastered, done. It's uh, I kind of I can't believe it. It's been a really long. Uh, it's been a long project. It's been kind of on and off for years. The, the way it 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 really eventually got finished was through. Um, really through the support of friends supporting a, a Kickstarter campaign mm. to actually really drive the album forward because I'd, I'd been working on the album 
with a very dear friend, Kelly Snook, who's producing the album. Uh-huh. Uh, and has been working with me on all of the musical arrangements of the songs. And we had worked on it for sort of arranging the songs and doing little bits of work on it here and there uh, for several years. But we were never able to finish it because it was it was such a big project and we had so much that we wanted to put into the songs. Uh, but we didn't have the the resources to actually be able to do what we envisioned. Now, how is this uh, project different than your other CDs in the past? You say this is this is bigger how, how mm. in what ways is it bigger i've listened to the album it's exquisite and extraordinary and it definitely has more production and more complexity to it and it's your songs have always had a certain kind of acoustic simplicity to them and there's this is feels more orchestrated more produced uh-huh. there's different sounds is is that what makes it um more complicated or more yeah, challenging both, both the the amount of um of detail involved in it, and also the amount of time that was put into refining every sound. So there are a lot more musicians involved in this project than in previous projects. Actually, some of my previous recordings were very stripped down guitar and voice, um, you know, sometimes a little bit of drum and bass. But this one has, you know, horn sections, string sections, um, you know, multiple sort of guitar tracking and harmonies. And Kelly has a lot of sort of very kind of unique production methods of layering sounds, you know, layers upon layers upon layers of different sounds that Mm. kind of, you know, weave in and out of each other and create a whole kind of soundscape around the words. Mm. Um, And so just the the whole work of actually orchestrating those sounds and then through the process of mixing and editing, like refining down those sounds. So really it was a, you know, it was a huge amount of time that we put into actually the refinement of the, of the album. And, you know, once the instruments were tracked. And how did that feel, doing a crowdfunded album? Is it the first time you've done that? It was the first time I did it, yeah. It took me a long time to kind of, um, you know, build up the courage to do it. I, you know, the, the idea of sitting down in front of a camera and asking people for money for a project just terrified me. Mm-hmm. And for for many years, I, you know, I'd seen other, other friends do it, and I just thought, oh, no, I, I could never do that. I just, uh, I, I just I, I wouldn't have the guts to do that. But just through, you know, conversations with friends. Now, you met, friends. you met your goal. What was your original goal? The original goal was $25,000. In what? And in, in how much time did you give yourself to raise it? A, a month. A month. So it was and the then, whole month of September. And then yeah. how, how quickly did you raise it? <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, 23 hours. Was The goal was reached. So you. it was... That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. You gave yourself 30 yeah. days and you got it in one day. It was a, a real, that was a key moment in my life because it really, it was just it, more than the numbers. It was this, it was the feeling of support that came in, you know, for several years, I've been traveling around to visit different communities and do, you know, to play at different sort of firesides and devotionals and things like that. I just met people in different parts of the world over the years. And then on that day, the support that came in, it was just staggering. I was jittery for days. You know, I, c- I c- couldn't believe what had happened. So then you were able to up the budget for the production and, and whatnot. Yeah. So our um, our original idea was to, you know, record and release this album uh, in 2017, kind of in honor of the bicentennial. And we also, you know, we had a, a kind of a vague idea that, well, you know, if things go well and we manage to do this, maybe we could also think about doing a second album in 2019 for the bicentennial of the birth of the Bob. Mm, mm. But when when we reached the goal for the Kickstarter, we just thought, well, you know, 
why don't we just try and raise the funds for the second album right now? And so uh, we put together a little announcement and I just put up a little video on the Kickstarter, announced that, we, you know, this special stretch goal to make a second album for 2019. And then, uh, but yeah, by the end of the month, we had reached this second goal and that we doubled the goal and we, we had the funds for two albums. So oh, that's once fantastic. We finish, once we finish this first album, we need to get cracking on the second album. And everyone who supported the Kickstarter is going to receive the second album as well automatically in oh, 2019. That's wonderful. What a, what a great story. But I imagine it's some pressure too. You feel a responsibility to all those donors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got our work cut out for us. <laughs> great, great. Well, I know I donated and I got a free Skype session with Luke Slot. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm taking that free Skype session. Uh, you wrote me and you're like, hey, Rain, you want to have a free Skype session? I was like, yes, and I want to interview you for the Skype session. So I'm just using you for my own nefarious projects. Oh, but, Rain, thank you for your support. But let's go back to the very beginning. So how did you hear about the Baha'i Faith? How did you become a Baha'i? I first heard about the Baha'i Faith from my brother, Mike. It was a little bit unusual because I grew up in Dublin. You know, my family was... a a little bit unusual because we had, we had a very uh, non-religious upbringing. Mm. Um, you know, most of my friends growing up in the 80s were, um, you know, either Catholic or Protestant, went to church on Sundays. Um, whereas my uh, my parents came from a mix of Jewish and Catholic backgrounds, mm. but um, they uh, neither of them were practicing. And my brother and I weren't raised with any religious practice at all or any kind of uh, faith community or anything. But uh, when my brother went off to Scotland to go to college, he went to study music technology. He's a music producer himself, and he went to study music technology in Glasgow. And um, while he was there, he, he met some Baha'is, and he began to study the Baha'i faith. And we were all quite surprised when he, he called home one day and said that he wanted to be a Baha'i. Hmm. He had found this this faith that he loved, and he 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 had been looking into it, and uh, and actually the the only one of us who the only person in the family who knew what the Baha'i faith was was our mother, who years before had actually gone on a like a a Mediterranean cruise to Israel and had actually visited the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, ah. um, kind of as a tourist, and had. Uh, you know, this was long before the terraces were complete or, you know, or any of the, you know, the way it was, the way it is now, it, it didn't look like that. Probably back in the 70s before we were born, she had gone there and she remembered a few Baha'i principles that she had picked up while she was visiting the World Center. Um, and so she she said, oh, yes, I remember this. This is this is fine, you know, and because it was, that was quite reassuring because, you know, oh, she was like, it's legit. She legitimized Yeah, well, you know, but, you know we, we always, we grew up, our mother was always very careful to tell us, you know, be careful of, you know, there are groups out there who, you know, you know, maybe their intentions aren't very good and you have to be careful who you talk to and who you get involved with. And uh, so we were always quite kind of vigilant about, you know, growing up and talking to different groups. But she knew that the Baha'i faith was, this was good. And so it was it was very much accepted in the family when my brother became a Baha'i. And at first I you know, I, I, I wasn't really interested because like I said, we we had no, you know, upbringing. we had no religion in in our upbringing. And so I wasn't really interested at first, but little by little I began to you know, I would 
I would have conversations with my brother. I would visit him in Glasgow. And um, I started to meet some of his new Baha'i friends, his odd new Baha'i friends uh-huh. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> that I actually felt really drawn to and liked being around. <laughs> uh-huh. and, um, yeah, I, I just found did, that. Did you have, a, did a, you have a, a, a profound spiritual experience was, or was it just a very slow kind of coming into the Baha'i community and studying the writings? Was there any specific thing that happened that <clears throat> really drew you ultimately? I think it was both. It was first a, a slow sense of uh, attraction um, to the teachings and, you know, and to these new Baha'i people that I was meeting that I just felt drawn to, to be around. And slowly, slowly, I found that yeah, my interest was increasing whenever my brother mentioned something, particularly when he, he, uh, he mentioned to me one day the Baha'i principle of independent investigation of truth. Mm. And... Um, this really just uh, this really struck me because, you know, growing up, I had so, so I had such little understanding of religion mm. that I think you know I had a lot of I, I think I had a lot of prejudices about religion, but I just didn't want to be involved with it, didn't want to know about it, sure, and uh, didn't want anything to do with it. And I think when when my brother said this thing about independent investigation of truth, I thought, wow, that's not that I've never heard of religion talking about this kind of thing. And so I thought, well, you know, if there's if there's any if there's any truth to this Baha'i thing, <laughs> um, maybe it's worth investigating just on my own, you know, in, independently as it as it's suggested. And so I picked up a few Baha'i books, and uh, I looked up the Baha'i Center back home in Dublin, mm-hmm. and um, you know, got some information. And there I got involved in a Ruhi book. Mm-hmm. So there was some friends at the Baha'i Center there who. Basically, I knocked on the door asking for information. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, you know, there's a course happening if you'd like to learn more about the faith. And so I joined this course, which was Ruhi Book One. And I, you know, that was nice. Every Thursday night, I would um, I would kind of sneak out, <laughs> go down to the Baha'i Center and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and do Ruhi Book One. And I think the, the more that, you know, the more I read the writings in the Ruhi Book and just in, you know, in private study reading books and I think one of the first books I read was Baha'u'llah and the New Era, which I mm-hmm. felt was a great introduction. Hmm. But then, it was, I remember if you, you, know, you asked about a, a particular spiritual experience. During that whole time, uh, one of my brother's friends in Glasgow very kind of casually just offered me a copy of The Hidden Words. And this was really my first book of, of Baha'i writings, like uh-huh. an actual direct book. And so I took this home and I, I remember re- just sitting down and reading through the whole thing one evening and having no idea what it was talking about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh-huh. but, um, but feeling like I couldn't put it down. And uh, there was something that I just felt, there was a, a, like a, re- reading that book, I just felt like a kind of presence that I had never felt before and never, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I had no, it was something so unfamiliar, but something so comforting Hmm. That I, I wanted, I wanted more of it, whatever it was. And um, there was a particular verse in the hidden words that kept coming back to me, which is um, one of the early ones. It's it goes, uh, "Oh, son of being, thy paradise is my love, thy heavenly home reunion with me. Enter therein and tarry not. Uh, this is that which hath been destined for thee in our kingdom above and our exalted dominion." This verse was, it just swam around in my head for several weeks. 
and um, almost like song lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, after some time, I, I just I, I I kind of couldn't resist anymore, and I was thinking, what am I tarrying for? <laughs> I, I, I love this. I need I I need this. I need to step into this. And so you decided and, uh, to tarry not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, and so many of your songs are uh, based on the hidden words. And that's a very uh-huh. special book to you. How then did you integrate your songwriting uh, and your newfound faith? So that that was something of a, it was a strange challenge I was faced with in in how to um how to find, you know, some kind of harmony between my songwriting and you know the work that I was doing as a musician. What kind of work were you doing as and, a musician before you became a Baha'i? And how did becoming a Baha'i change that? Well, mostly songwriting. I had mm-hmm. been in a band uh, throughout my teens and early 20s. I was in a band. Just coming out of school, we had, we had got a deal. We'd signed a deal. And we were basically, you know, straight out of high school. We were full-time in the band, touring around Ireland and the UK. And we had released a couple of singles. And um, we were actually in the middle of recording an album, and about halfway through the album, we got dropped. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Got dropped by the label, yeah. So, you know, it was tough at the time. But, uh, you know, really what happened after after we got dropped was that, yeah, we, we got dropped from the label and we split up. And there I was with, uh, with no job. I wasn't in college and I had a lot of time. And that was the time when I decided that, that I had a lot of time to read and I was going to investigate this faith that my brother had joined. Hmm. And um, so that was actually, a, you know, it was quite a, a special time when I had that time to, you know, really immerse myself in a personal study of the faith. But that also brought up the challenge of how to figure out how this, how I would integrate uh, my music and my faith. And it was something of a challenge because, you know, as I said, I, w- I, I hadn't been raised with any faith at all. So, in a sense, music had really been like my religion. <laughs> you know, it was something that I was so deeply immersed in. Um, you know, I, I, I practiced in the way you, you, you practice a religion. You know, I practiced right. and practiced and practiced. You were devout. Um, very, very much so, I think so, about yeah. the word devout and the word <laughs> coming from devotion and devoted uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and uh, and I, I can relate to that a lot because when I left the faith after I was raised a Baha'i youth uh, for a long time in New York City, I, I really saw that my religious fervor just moved to making art and making uh-huh. theater and acting. And we really huh. believed that we could change the world with acting. And I had a, <laughs> you know, I was e- evangelical theater artist about, you know, <laughs> breaking down walls and bringing people together in new and exciting ways through performance. And, um, and I see that, that, you know, the Baha'i spirit really just shifted in a way for me to art oh. in, in my twenties and, and early thirties. So I really relate to that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think one challenge that I felt was that I, I was, I had become so used to putting in so much time and energy and thought into music whether it was practicing, composing, writing songs. But then, of course, you know, when I joined the faith, I realized there was all these other things that required, uh, you know, some of my time and energy and that I, I wanted to I wanted to, to do them. But, you know, I also wanted to continue 
making music. And that also required a lot of time and energy. And so finding how to do both was tricky for me for a while. And, um, you know, I remember my brother, uh, he, he uh, early on, I, t- I told him about this challenge. And um, he said to me, you know, try not to think of them as two separate things. Try to think of them as one thing, as that, you know, this this tree of music that you're growing, you know, this is this is Baha'u'llah's tree of music, and mm. you're tending you're tending to that, you know. I and think that's, so, that's such a beautiful. Uh, sorry, I keep jumping in here, but that's no, such a beautiful way of looking at it because ultimately, it is all part of the same spiritual journey. If we're whether you're an artist or an accountant, your work, your occupation uh, is an expression of yourself. We're you know we're told to have an occupation in the Baha'i faith, and how important that is, and how much spiritual importance that is given. And, you know, with our, in our friendships and in our family and in our work and in our teaching of the faith and serving the faith and serving in other ways that don't have to do with the faith, it's all mm-hmm. part of one expression of our, of our higher selves. As long mm-hmm. as we are growing and um, deepening, enriching, and, and are flourishing our higher selves and giving that our, our higher selves to service, that's it's all uh, for Baha'u'llah. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I think that it's really what's it's what's going on inside that that is the really important thing, you know. That, so that even even in way forms of service that might that might seem very indirect, uh, could in reality be you know very direct forms of service, you know. Even in in music, you know, there were there were the sort of more obvious paths that I have tried to cultivate in terms of like setting the Baha'i writings to music. But there are other areas of music where I still try to say, uh, for example, if I'm playing piano, even if there's no words, I still try to approach it in a way that I, you know, I hope that this music is of service to the people who hear it. Or, you know, even if I'm, if I do a job where I'm hired to play to play music for something, to try to approach that in an attitude of service. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the, just a shift in attitude like that actually kind of resolved that early challenge for me in mm. how to, you know, how to find that balance between, uh, m- you know, my life growing up in music and this newfound faith. So mm. how did you, when did you first pick up a gu- guitar and say, I'm going to put some Baha'i, some spiritual words of Baha'u'llah to music? Ah, that was really when I moved to New York very shortly after I became a Baha'i, I was in my early 20s, and I uh, I decided to move to New York. Wait, an Irishman Most... moving to New York? <laughs> How unusual. <laughs> I must be a trendsetter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I moved to New York, and really, with no real plan in mind, mm-hmm. Um but I, I think it was shortly after I had, you know, my band had split up. Um, I had found the faith. And in that all had happened in kind of a short time. And I was craving for a change of scene. And so I moved to New York and I decided that I would just go there and I would probably somehow meet musicians there and do something new. I was putting the sort of I was putting things behind me in terms of what had happened with the band and everything. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to, you know, try and do something new. And around that time, I met uh, Diane Badia in New York. It was a Baha'i friend there. I met at, a, at an open mic that happened every week at the New York Baha'i Center. Hmm. And um, 
Diane used to sing at this open mic and I would go there and sing as well. It was called The Cornerstone. It was a, this weekly open mic. It was great. You know, there were songwriters and poets from, you know, it was, it was totally open door. Anyone would come in off the street and offer some song or poem or oh, some, that's great. Some, something they had to offer. At this open mic, Diane and I actually started singing together occasionally. And um, I had started around this time to play around with setting the Baha'i writings to music. You know, it was, I, I didn't really think of it as like, this isn't serious music. Mm, this, mm-hmm. is, you know, this, is, this is just a little hobby or something, you know. Mm. Um, but Diane, had, you know, re- really encouraged me to do more of it because she had been doing, she had grown up singing the Baha'i writings. It was something very natural for her to do, to sing these melodies to the words. And so I started actually writing duets with the Baha'i writings with Diane's voice in mind. And so we started singing these songs around like devotionals in firesides around New York. Hmm. Do you remember the first one that you wrote with her? The first one I wrote with her was, um, I think it was that same hidden word. It was thy paradise is my love, which is, which is now on the new album. Oh, that's great. What's the, can you sing the melody? What is the melody? Yeah, it goes, um, sorry to put you on the spot. Well, no, well, it's a duet. So I, you know, I can only sing half of it, but it goes, um, Thy paradise is my love, thy heavenly home, reunion with me, enter therein, and tarry not. Oh, and it goes up like oh, that. fantastic. That's so, great. Um, so we started putting together these songs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and over time, we had a little handful of these uh, of these duets, of mostly of hidden words and a couple of prayers. And these songs have now, well, finally, after you know several years later, we've managed to record them and put them on the new album. Oh, that's wonderful! I've noticed with so many Baha'i artists that they have long dormant CDs in them. They're like, <laughs> oh, I've been working on these Baha'i songs, and I started these 15 years ago, and I have I have enough for an album, but. Um, and it oftentimes will take a good decade or two for Baha'is to kind of, you <laughs> yeah. know, get it together to, to record it and master it and get it out. I know it's a lot of work, all that. Yeah. Um, to, it's one thing to write a song. Yeah. It's another thing to record it properly, mix it properly, master it properly, release it properly. Um, yeah. And sometimes it takes several drafts, you know, hmm. like uh, sometimes it takes, you know, you, you record it. And, um, you know, you, you, you spend some time listening to it and you realize that, you know, it, it needs a little bit more work. So then you have to go back and do it again. And, you know, several of these songs on the new album, you know, took several, several drafts before we felt like, yeah, this is, this is right now. This oh, feels good. That's great. Well, we got, we got a little taste of your uh, angelic voice. And would you be so kind as to share with us um, an acoustic version of one of your songs here today? Sure, I'd love to. Do you know do you know what song you're uh, ready to share with us? Oh, um actually it occurred to me to do that one, but since I've just sung that one, maybe I should do a different one. Um let me see. I'll do the opening song of the album. It's this one's called Beauty. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Yeah, take your time whenever you're ready.
my companion And the power of thy sovereignty my succorer And thy habitation my home And my dwelling place The seed thou hast sanctified From the limitations imposed upon them Who are shut out as by a veil From thee upon them Who are shut out as by a veil From thee upon them Who are shut out as by a veil From thee upon them Who are shut out as by a veil From Thou art verily the Almighty, the All-Glorious, the Most Powerful, the was amazing. Thank you so much, Luke. Just uh, gorgeous. Thank you so much. Thanks, friend. Let's continue the conversations. Um, you, on your albums, you use the paintings of Shireen Sabah on your album covers, and um, and you commissioned her to do the new album cover as well. Can you tell you mm-hmm. tell us about? I, I love the her drawings, and um, they're, and they're so evocative, and they suit your music so well. Uh, can you tell me about this collaboration? Yeah, it's um, I love Shireen's work. I, I've uh, funnily enough, we've never actually met. Oh my <laughs> goodness! Yeah, <laughs> um, but I've loved her work for years, and um, several years ago, I wrote to her, and uh, I was preparing my first CD of uh, of devotional songs with the Baha'i writings. It was creating me a pure heart. It was um, very simple, just guitar and voice. It was four songs. Actually, one of the songs was voice only. So it was a very simple, stripped down record. 
And uh, while I was working on this, I wrote to Shireen. I had seen her work in different people's homes that I'd visited. And uh, I just really fell in love with it immediately. And I wrote to her and I asked her if I could maybe use uh, one of her paintings as the cover of this EP that I was doing. She very kindly gave me permission to use to use uh, this lovely, this beautiful blue uh, kind of uh, ocean scene with all these fishes in the water mm, mm. Uh, for that CD. Um, then a year later, I wrote to her again and said, "Look, I've got an, I've got another EP coming out. It's four more songs. It's um, it's you know, it's a there's a little bit more music in it. It's a little bit richer. There's some you know, a little bit of strings, uh, so a little bit of drums and bass. It's a little bit more um, detailed." And uh, could I use another painting for this? And she very kindly let me use another painting of hers. And then, you know, I was feeling bad because she was letting me use this work, you know, free of charge. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, look, I I, want to do something for you. I want to include an official commission for you as part of the Kickstarter campaign. So I want to raise the funds to actually commission a a new painting. Oh, that's beautiful. um, so So that I can properly you know, pay her for her work. And so I sent her a couple of songs as we were working on them in the studio for the, from the new album. And they were kind of, you know, they were half finished. We were still tracking. We were in the middle of mixing on some of them. And I just sent them over to her. I said, look, these are a few of the songs we're working on. They're very kind of colorful and vibrant. And this, the, the album is, um, is called Year of the Nightingale. And it's, uh, it's, we're going to release it in honor of the bicentenary. So she uh, she took these songs and I kind of left her to it. And um, a couple of months later, she came back with this this absolutely stunning uh, painting for the for the cover. Which it what it does is it's it's a it's a wide landscape painting and it wraps all the way around the CD front to back. So it makes a really nice cover. Um, what, so yeah, what so, is this this CD of which you speak? What is that? <laughs> Is that is yeah. that like an eight track? Yeah. Is that like yeah, <laughs> yeah, almost as old. This is old. This is for the old schoolers in old the Kickstarter. Schoolers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Limited Sometimes edition. I have a new car that doesn't even have a CD player in it. <laughs> yeah. So people give me CDs, and like I don't know. I don't. I literally I don't own a CD player. I don't know yeah. where I could play it. <laughs> you know, my my uh, my laptop doesn't have a CD player, so no. I realize I can't actually play the CD myself. <laughs> <laughs> um. So what are you um what are you reading right now from the Baha'i writings or Baha'i history? I'm reading an, an amazing book. It's called With Thine Own Eyes. It's an incredible, incredible book about the subject of independent investigation of truth. There's it that is, theme again. Okay. Yeah. It's just it is one of the most amazing uh, you know, Baha'i inspired books that I've ever read. It's um it's, Who's the author? There's actually three authors, and I can't remember all their names. One of them is Ronald Tomanio. There are mm-hmm. three, and they come from different backgrounds in psychology, philosophy, education. It's a fascinating book. Um, the, the front of it, it says, why imitate the past when you can investigate reality? And this is the theme of the book. And it, the, the book opens with... Here, I have the authors, Ronald Tomanio, Diane Iverson, and Phyllis Ring, just to give That's them... That's the one. Uh, it's from George Ronald Publishing, and just to give them their fair due. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Can't recommend it highly enough. It's um, They begin the book with uh, a message from the Universal House of Justice to the Baha'is of Italy 
uh, in, I think, 1974, the Baha'is of Italy had written uh, a letter to the Universal House of Justice asking what they should do in terms of um, financial contributions to uh, developing countries and how they could uh, develop some kind of fund to send money to developing countries. Um, because, you know, so many people were becoming very uh, disturbed as the knowledge of the state of developing countries was becoming more widespread. Mm-hmm. And the Universal House of Justice wrote them this uh, this message. It's an incredible message. It's, it's describing how, you know, of course, they very, very uh, lovingly acknowledge this and the sensitivity of these Baha'is in Italy who are expressing this concern about mm-hmm, developing mm-hmm. countries. And they say that there are there are agencies and organizations in the world working on these issues, you know, material, financial sure. issues, mm-hmm. um, which the Baha'i community, you know, really whatever the Baha'i community could offer in this, in this way it would only be a drop in the ocean compared to what these agencies and organizations can offer in terms of like material assistance and financial assistance. And the House of Justice directs the attention of these Baha'is to um, really focusing on the spiritual remedy that's needed for the very problems that they're talking about. Mm. And they break it down in this letter into these, these um, I think it's three or four points of how Baha'is can help this situation in a more um, sort of long, with a more long-term vision in mind. And that is mm. helping people of any country uh, in any state of development to understand what they are, uh, to what purpose they've been created, and how to live their lives. And, they, and then the authors of this book, they take these three statements of the House of Justice mm. And, and then each chapter in the book follows, um, so it's, it's like a commentary on each of these statements in the letter, kind of breaking down how people can learn who they are, what they are, how they can learn to what purpose they've been created, and how they can learn how to uh, live their lives. Mm. And with, with, a, with a much sort of longer term vision in mind, they state that this is really, this is really the work of the Baha'is. And one of the things they write in the letter is um, the importance of focusing our attention on uh, building the good rather than fighting the evil. Mm. And how really, you know, there is so much effort in the world is put into fighting evil. And it's with the most noble intentions. Sure. But often, you know, in that with that effort to fight evil, s- sometimes there isn't a a clear vision of what to build afterwards. And so right. it's much has, easier to protest something that you perceive as negative than it is to be involved in the long, slow, difficult consultative process of building something beautiful and noble and good that makes the world a better place. Exactly, exactly. And I think that 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 effort in fighting evil it comes from a desire for justice. You know, it is a, it's, you know, people see injustice mm-hmm. and, and they, they want to, they want to fight that. They want right. to change that into justice. So right. it is, it is noble, but it's, I think that, you know, as Baha'is, I think we're very lucky that we have a clear vision of the, of something we can build 
that can be beneficial and constructive. Mm. And really, if we put our energy into that, what the House of Justice says in this message is that if we focus on building the good, as hard as that may be, the evils in the world will, you know, slowly collapse in on themselves and our energy will have been put into into building something good for the future. Wow, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm going to definitely order that book. That sounds that's yeah, great. Yeah, it's a great book. And what are what's your current spiritual test? What uh, what oh, quote God. what quote are you <laughs> looking at? Uh, what where are your where do your current struggles lie? So one thing I'm I'm struggling with is um, learning to you know when 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 you put something so much work into something, and that you just find that there is so much to do. Um, it's very easy to get yourself into a state of panic and, have, you know, I, I, I'm prone to bouts of terrible anxiety sometimes. And I think I'm, I'm learning to, to notice those anxieties simply as anxieties and, and, and try to consciously, uh, trust, very deliberately trust that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But all I can do is is do the work I need to do, mm. um, get it done to the best of my ability. Um, it sounds like the, it sounds like the Serenity Prayer in action. You know, it's uh, <laughs> grant me the uh, you know, serenity to yeah. accept the things I cannot change and the courage to do the things I can. Uh, yeah. It's such a simple and profound prayer. I wish it was a Baha'i prayer. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I think. That's that's exactly what I need at this time because it's such a crunch time for the album and you know getting everything lined up. You know, it's it's been a very um, the, the whole recording process has been very spiritually infused. You know, we would often begin our recording sessions with prayers, and obviously the the the, the words we're recording, we're hearing them over and over again all sure. day, every day in the studio, um, which you know creates a you know, very highly charged atmosphere spiritually in the studio. Um, you know, often working in, in the studio with Kelly, you know, we would, once a week, we would take a break from our, our session her uh, to have her, her junior youth group with local junior youth right there in the studio. So we would oh. actually take a break from recording um, and, uh, you know, the local junior youth would come and we'd have our session and uh, for a couple of hours, and then we'd go back to recording. Right. So, um, you know, there was this great, there was this great atmosphere in the studio. Um, but, you know, there's also, there's all of the kind of material aspects, the real sort of concrete, um, you know, technological aspects of releasing an album, uh, getting it up online, getting it ready for distribution, and, you know, making sure it's accessible to everybody. Um, a lot of these things can be, uh, you know, can create stress and anxiety so how do you so, how do you find solace um through your faith through the through these issues i uh there's a particular prayer of the bob which i've been saying a lot um you know it relates to work um it, it's the one that goes oh lord unto thee i repair for refuge unto all thy signs i set my heart whether traveling or at home and in my occupation or in my work, I place my whole trust in thee. Mm. Uh, grant me then thy sufficing help so as to make me independent of, of all save thee. O thou who art unsurpassed in thy mercy. I think it's something like that. This is the prayer I've been 
reading a lot lately to help me with with the work that I'm doing at the moment. You know, and just doing the work and then trusting that it will, you know, it will be okay. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's great. You know, that's great. And what? Um, and finally, I would say, what advice do you have to young Baha'is, to young Baha'i artists, uh, young Baha'i musicians? What can you say? There, there's so many that you meet that are wanting to start mm. their journey uh, as artists. Mm. Yeah, I think um, first thing is put in the work. You know, it is, it is uh, I think any art form requires a huge amount of work. There's a, there's a poem I love by W.B. Yeats. It's called Adam's Curse. It's about the, <laughs> it's about the curse of the artist. And it's, he describes the work that's involved in, you know, a poet writing a poem, carving up the words, or a songwriter writing a song, or a painter making a painting. It applies to any artist. And the, the, the artist has to put in so much work to get his craft to the point that it it looks as if it was easy. Mm. Mm-hmm. But but the curse in this, the result of this, is that people look at the the work and then they think, oh, that was easy. You know, he doesn't do any work. <laughs> He's a right. slacker. <laughs> you know, and then so Yates says, you know, it would be better off to just get down on the floor and scrub the floor, and that way it would be it would be kind of clear that we are really really working hard. Mm. So the point the the point of the poem, I think, is that art requires a lot of work. But I think I'm so glad you said that. And, and again, here I am jumping in. Um, I'm so glad you said that because I do feel that it, it is, it's, it's crucial to know that, that artists put in years, uh, decades, and uh, ten, the 10,000 hours uh, into yeah. mastery yeah. of their craft. And you're right, the end result is they make it look easy. I, I know it's the same way with acting, where you know these really great actors, you can just watch them they're just standing there they're just listening and they're just saying some lines and they're <laughs> incredible and but the amount of plays they've done and classes mm-hmm. and reading and studying that to, to get mm-hmm. them to that point with just relaxed simplicity and emotional truth and connecting it all to, to language and pretending that you're in this moment is mm-hmm. it's uh, it is extraordinary and it's as much it's as much Hard work as learning to be a surgeon, I think. Yeah, so, you know, I think for young young artists, you know, of any of any form, I think um, to to keep the long term in mind. You know, I think any any uh, artistic path, any path at all, but I think the 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 ups and downs of an artistic path can be quite extreme sometimes, mm-hmm. um, but can also be you know very rewarding, very fulfilling. And so I think think of the long term, and I think of for for um, you know, young Baha'i musicians and artists. I think it's important to focus on focus on on excellence, mm. and and really don't don't try to be famous. Just focus on excellence, ah, and, and don't worry about that other stuff. You know, mm. I think mm. that's um, you know, that's I think that that is truly rewarding, and and can be beneficial for you know everyone who. Is either the the purveyor or the recipient of excellence. Oh, that's well said. Really beautifully, perfectly said. And let's let's end on that thought. And speaking of excellence, how's that for a transition? You're welcome, Luke. Uh, can we use one of your songs? Can we end on one of your songs from the album? 
Oh, I'd love that. Okay, great. Sure. What what song shall we end on? Uh, so I, I think I, the song I, I would love to share with the listeners is um, is one called Reckoning. This uh, this is a, a verse from the Hidden Words that goes, uh, "O Son of Being, bring thyself to account each day, ere thou art summoned to a reckoning, for death unheralded shall come upon thee, and thou shalt be called to give account for thy deeds." Um, this, uh, of course, this was one of the very early. Uh, Baha'i quotes that I read because it's um, I'm sure as, as many of the listeners know, this verse is is one of the ver- is one of the first quotes on the first page of the first Ruhi book. So anyone who has has done the first Ruhi book would be familiar with this quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so what uh, what Kelly and I tried to do in the studio with this one was we tried to um, really try and create a, a kind of a sense of urgency and intensity and. And time, um, kind of time passing with a sense of urgency around the words. Um, there's a, in the middle of the song, there's a clave that comes in tapping. And it's, it's almost like the ticking of a clock. Ah, <laughs> yes. So um, we wanted to, to create that sense of, of, of time driving forward. And the, the, the drums in this song are what, it's one of my favorite songs for drums. There's this really amazing kind of urgent Uh, drum rhythm that comes in halfway through which I just, I love (laughs) Bring thyself
Oh, wow. That was amazing. Well, I'm so glad you put some urgency to it because it's such an important uh, quote. And it's in all the religious faiths. I mean, the Christians believe that and the Muslims believe it. Um, that we, this is the day of reckoning, day of judgment, and that, that conversation that we will have with Baha'u'llah, you know, are we going to hold our head, heads high and, uh, and, and really be able to speak of our lives? Uh, or is it, are we, how, it's just, we're all going to feel some amount of shame, I imagine, but just to what uh-huh. degree? <laughs> I guess that's what it yeah. is. It uh, puts things in perspective and, and hopefully hopefully keeps one humble to some extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> humble and moving forward. Humble and moving forward. Like the claves of your song. <laughs> Thank you, Luke Slot. You're the best. This was a beautiful conversation. Thanks for joining me. And good luck with the release of the album. And if people want to find your work, they can go to what website? It's all on lukeslot.com. Slot with two all, T's. Okay. Slot with two T's. And um all of the uh, the songs are being posted throughout the period of the fast. They're being posted on YouTube mm-hmm. um, as lyric videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're simple. Each song has a simple video featuring the words of the song and uh, on, on a background of Shirin Sahba's art. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Oh, so that's these great. are all on YouTube. You can just look up the, the songs on YouTube. Oh, and they'll- That's beautiful. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Luke. Thanks a lot, Ray. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>